Rob Corbett, Partner and Head of the Technology and Innovation Group, chairs this panel discussion on content moderation. The topics include key changes for content moderation programs, considering AI in content moderation, new rules for content moderation, and content removal and governance obligations under the Digital Services Act. So I'm going to be joined for our next session by Olivia, who you've met earlier, um, Kira Anderson and Rosemary Blake. Um, and we're going to have a chat about content moderation, adopting a content moderation program for the digital age. So um, as we've seen through each of the discussions we've had this morning, the rules as to what constitutes illegal or harmful content are changing the obligations on those who are hosts of online content, whether it's illegal or harmful, are also changing. And it sounds from the last panel like there's a serious enough lift required, particularly of those operators on the upper end of the inverse uh, pyramid. And they've got to get it right by the 17th of February because the DSA is already in partial force, but it will be in full force by then. So this, this panel, I suppose, we're going to look at um, some of the sort of pragmatic stuff that that means. I know some people in the room are in the content moderation area. Some of you aren't, but may need to be in due course. So many of those of the hosting services will already have content moderation programs. They're, they're made up, I suppose, on the, on the front end of, of a combination of terms and conditions, policies, community standards. So a sort of a self-regulation. Sometimes okay, companies will adhere to codes of conduct on illegal hate speech or codes of practice on disinformation and that type of thing. And then there's the legal side of things, the things that you're currently already required to take down when you become aware of them. And we've talked earlier about issues like CSAM material, the child sexual abuse material, intellectual property infringement, uh, that type of thing. Um, and then with the OSMRA, what we're learning is, is that um, there will be a, pr a process uh, required for the for the, for the service providers to identify content that's harmful and to have a process uh, in place to address it, um, including with the risk assessments and so forth. So a lot to digest in there. So, so maybe I'll kick off with a question for Olivia, I think. So uh, you set the scene earlier, Olivia, in terms of the, the whole the broad range of regulatory uh, uh, changes that are coming down the track for intermediaries. And then we heard from Commissioner Hodnett and, and, and Commissioner Dixon about how they're going to work together as regulators uh, and upwards with their European Union colleagues in respect of the OSMRA, uh, the DSA and the, and the GDPR. So it strikes me that in order to comply with the OSMRA and the DSA, there'll be significant implications for content moderation teams in um, intermediation, but also for those seeking to have harmful or illegal content taken down. So when I put on my parents' hat and think of some of the th stuff I'd like to see removed from the internet, I, I have a different perspective than when I'm an online content uh, host being requested to take it down. So maybe you'd help step us through some of the key changes we should be preparing for. Uh, <clears throat> sure. So just the first point in relation to the e-commerce regime. So I noticed earlier that this was a notice and takedown um, regime where you weren't liable for content until such time as you were put a notice of it and you had to then act expeditiously to remove it. There was never an obligation to do active monitoring of what was on your platform or your service. And that principle does remain intact. What they have clarified in the DSA is that if you are an intermediary service provider and you want to voluntarily explore what's on your system and you want to detect illegal content without necessarily waiting for somebody to tell you what's up there, is that that won't affect 
your liability exemption under Safe Harbour? Because that was never quite clear. As, there was always a sense of, if you start poking around and having a look at what's on your platform, are you putting yourself on notice? Are you affecting your Safe Harbour exemption? There's very much encouragement to conduct voluntary content moderation on your platform without affecting your Safe Harbour exemption. So that's if you do it on a, on a voluntary basis. If you're an intermediary service provider that isn't subject to, as we said, you, before you start to move up the pyramid. When you're an online hosting provider, an online platform, uh, particularly when you're an online platform, you do have to have a content moderation system. And you have to make uh, all of the information about how it works, what kinds of notices you're providing, how many actions you've taken on foot of that, um, what is your content moderation uh, made up of. You mentioned kind of previously, it was kind of a community guideline, standards-based system, terms and conditions, and plus the mix of kind of the legal obligations to take stuff down. The platforms need to explain now what their content moderation is made up of. Is it, is it on the basis of T's and C's? Is it on the basis of illegal content, harmful content, and so forth? So they need to start by having a place on their website which isn't behind a login wall because it has to be easily accessible, whereby all of this information has been made available as to how content moderation works, uh, any use of AI, your complaint system, and uh, you know how you've balanced kind of rights of individuals and all of that. The second thing that I suppose, and this is more relevant to the VLOPs and VLOSs, is it must reflect your risk assessment. So. If you're a VLOP or you're VLOs, you have to actually take specific measures to identify illegal content on your uh, platform, as opposed to if you're not a VLOPs and you're VLOs, it's a notice and action uh, process that, that you need to engage in. But for all of those online platforms, you need to look at your policies, your procedures, see are they fit for purpose? Are you set up to deal with the, the timings that uh, were discussed earlier and that we'll probably discuss again in this panel in terms of taking action in a timely manner in response to a, a notice to take down uh, illegal content, making sure that the statement to the user who put it up there is, is provided and it has all the required information. You have a complaints mechanism, you have a system for dealing with this out of court dispute resolution. And also bearing in mind that you have to take account of everyone's rights here in content moderation. You have the rights of the person who is complaining about the content, even the rights of the person who's put the content up there. This is new, like we have a system here whereby fundamental rights, with some exceptions, were never supposed to be like enforced by private entities and, and, and the balancing test was always to be done by governments and courts and state agencies and state actors rather than private entities. We now have a situation where private entities are now trying to call it in terms of how do we balance the fundamental rights on the platform and provide information on that. That's really tricky. I mean, we've decades of case law on this where like the balancing test between the right of freedom of expression versus the right to privacy, right to a good name, right to earn a livelihood, like the list goes on, constantly trying to get that balance right. So that in itself is, is a tricky place to be. And if you don't get it right, there's civil remedies that we come on to in our next session for people who can claim for compensation uh, because you haven't got that balance right. And they are claiming that you didn't take account of their fundamental rights. So, you know, you can see immediately there's an awful lot of complexity in that topic. Yeah. And I mean, even today, maybe Rose, I'll bring you in here. I mean, the ability to spot content that's either illegal or harmful or in breach of community guidelines or terms and conditions, it, it, it's an impossible task. It's a Sisyphean task. I remember somebody from the, the platforms using that phrase. 
in relation to even identifying the content and then having the systems in place to take it down. So in this respect, I suppose AI is your friend. Um, but then the deployment of AI in the context of content moderation itself brings um, particular and emerging challenges. So Rose, is there anything else we need to consider when deploying AI in this type of an environment? There's lots to consider. So the DSA talks about algorithmic transparency. So for AI and content moderation, broadly the key things are, one, that you're providing transparency to the users of the platform. Two, transparency from a public reporting perspective. And Lorraine touched on that earlier, mentioning the need to disclose the use of automated means um, in your public reports. And then thirdly, the additional transparency and risk mitigation requirements applicable to VLOPs and VLOSs. So when you're looking at the transparency to users under the DSA, you have to provide information in the terms and conditions on the measures and tools for content moderation. And this mentions explicitly the need to provide information on the use of AI and the human review aspect. So the level of detail on that provision of information isn't quite specified, but we can be guided a bit more by some of the mentions in the recitals, which say that you've got to be clear to the platform user on two key things. One, how the algorithms impact and influence the services that are being provided. And two, how the services are restricted through content moderation using algorithmic decision making. So secondly, looking at the transparency in the public reports, there's a requirement in relation to the transparency reporting of AI and content moderation where you've got to be able to describe in a quite detailed way any use made of automated means for the purpose of content moderation, including how accurate that AI is, the rate of error and the safeguards applied to it. So to Olivia's point in that balancing of the fundamental rights, you've got to be able to demonstrate that your use of AI isn't going to result in an unjustifiable removal of legal content and there are safeguards in place for preventing that occurring. So then looking at the transparency and the additional pieces around VLOPs and VLOSs, so there's an additional piece here on analysing systemic risks stemming from the platform and service function including the systemic risks arising from the functioning of algorithms in the platform system. So last month, the European Centre of Algorithmic Transparency was launched, which is an AI research hub, which will support the Commission in assessing compliance with these risk management obligations, basically to identify the smoking guns, to drive enforcement of the DSA and hold some accountability there and test that risk management claims in the use of AI is going to stack up. And then lastly, looking at the AI Act and looking at the DSA's interaction with that. So it's really important to note here, the draft AI Act is primarily going to relate to high-risk systems. So AI that's used that poses a fundamental um, risk to people's fundamental rights and safety. The dial continues to move on that, but AI systems for content moderation are currently not likely to fall into that category. But when you're using your AI in your content moderation system, you'll still be subject to transparency requirements under the draft AI Act and there'll be a focus on non-discrimination. So that goes back to the safeguards point. You've got to be able to demonstrate you've got a diverse and broad data set for your algorithm to work effectively and in an unbiased way. So the kind of key takeaways there are transparency to users, being able to explain how the AI impacts the service they're interacting with, both from a presentation of the service and a restriction aspect, being able to explain the logic and design of the AI systems that are deployed in content moderation programs in a meaningful way to comply with your transparency reporting obligations. And then that systemic risk point to also note that you have an obligation to look at your risk mitigation obligations when using your AI. Great. I mean, I mean the platforms are going to be playing with fire here, right? I mean, the, the use of AI, as you're talking there, you know, ultimately, potentially to profile people as criminals, you know, if they're 
deliberately posting illegal content brings you right back into the GDPR world of, 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 of profiling and human intervention. And then the safeguards and the transparency and the risk assessments and so forth. I mean, the platforms may well be foisted on their own petard, you know, by reference to the fact that they knew about the risks and they didn't, or did they or did they not uh, sufficiently uh, address those risks. So we're learning a lot about not just the transparency piece, but also the back end kind of, you know, operational points to comply with the DSA. So um, I don't know if there are any, Olivia, to you, maybe any sort of top tips, you know, if that's what's coming over the horizon, what are, what should the guys be thinking about in the room if they're involved in content moderation programs? Well, the first thing you'd have to do is decide where in the pyramid you sit uh, and what action, if any, you need to take. Then you need to, to have an assessment of which of the pieces of legislation that we picked up on earlier are relevant to your content moderation program because there's different steps and actions you need to take because that will inform what response mechanism you need to have in place. Uh, there are certain kind of obligations without to take action without undue delay under the DSA. There's a concept in the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act around taking action in relation to harmful online content. I think after like two days, then you can, uh, the person can complain to the Online Safety Commissioner. So you have all of these overlapping obligations and, and uh, the regulators mentioned earlier that they'll pick whichever one makes sense, but you still have to have the mechanisms in place to comply with them all. So doing an audit to see where do you sit in relation to that is, is, is going to be important. There are certain escalation triggers as well in the DSA where you need to keep records so that you are um, understanding, like is there anyone who is manifestly or frequently providing manifestly illegal content because you need to take measures to deal with them. If there is a suspicion of a criminal offence, um, occurring on the platform that needs to be escalated to law enforcement. Um, there's various other uh, issues, including in relation to your internal compliance, making sure that your content moderation is properly plugged into your compliance function, is capturing the data that you need then to inform your risk assessments and any other steps that need to take. So it, 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 there is quite a lot that, that rides on your content moderation program. And don't forget that while AI is important and necess uh, necessary, and you need to explain how you're using it. There are restrictions in terms of where it can't be used uh, in content moderation. And you will have to retain that human element uh, in terms of like, for example, in relation to appeals. There's a lot of employment issues in terms of having like a human content moderation team in terms of risk assessing, uh, risks of personal injury. Are they suited to this particular type of work? So there's a big HR element in that that, that can't be forgotten about. And, uh, employment law advice is frequently needed when you're staffing and resourcing and training uh, members of that team. So those are just a few yeah. points. Yeah, we're dealing with a stack of those personal injuries claims bought by content moderators who claim uh, to have suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and similar symptoms having been exposed to it. So, so maybe, Kira, I might turn to you. I mean, so after we've determined what constitutes illegal content or content that breaches the organisation's terms and conditions or its policies, the DSA at least sets out specific new rules that will apply across the EU for content moderation programmes. So is this level of harmonisation, do you think it'll be welcomed by, by the platforms? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
you know, I think going back to first principles, that liability position really isn't changing. I think that's really important. If you're actually aware, um, you will be liable for content if you don't expeditiously remove it. But the DSA does is it provides a bit more of color to, to, to when you're actually aware and a procedure. So ultimately, many organizations currently have content moderation programs, but they're largely based outside of certain areas like terrorist content on their T's and C's and on their own programs that they've developed themselves. Um, so uh, this procedure is helpful. So for example, uh, user notices in relation to legal content, uh, they need to set out specifically the URL of the content and they need to provide an explanation uh, that would allow a diligent provider to understand that the content is illegal without a detailed legal examination. So that is a bit of a standard um, um, which is helpful. Ultimately, if you receive a notice and it's not clear, then you're not actually aware and then you're not necessarily um, liable. So that's helpful. Um, another um, avenue of which you become aware that people have mentioned is the trusted flagger regime. So I think many organizations probably have bilateral arrangements with, with industry groups um, on a formal or informal basis. This is now a legal standard to have these trusted flaggers, for example, Europol or um, organizations that identify uh, child sex abuse material, and they'll be identified by the digital service coordinator. So that's another avenue of which you become actually aware that's now been codified, if you will. Um, and then another area which we haven't spoken to yet is law enforcement orders. So that's another avenue by which you be could become actually aware. Um, uh, and again, organizations receive these orders. I mean, we see them all the time. They're in different languages. They're upside down. They're sideways. They don't have any information in them. And you know, organizations are really struggling to to, to parse them uh, and determine what kind of content they're referring to. So there's now again a requirement that all member states have to set for what these uh, law enforcement orders. Uh, need to have in them. So, for example, they need to have who's the issuing authority, um, what is the legal basis for the order itself, um, what is a, an explanation of why the content is illegal with a reference to the particular law, um, and then just practical things like the territorial, territorial uh, scope of the order, and it needs to be in the language of the provider, so, um, um, or that they understand, so they're not just trying to translate. So I think that's quite helpful um, to, for organizations who have ultimately had to develop these processes themselves. Um, two final points which I think have been mentioned uh, is just the, again, it's taken away the, the, the um, discretion in terms of the criminal offense. So many organizations would report to law enforcement if, there's a, if they're aware of information in relation to a criminal offense, just as good citizens. Uh, but now you're required to do so if you're aware of information relating to a crime that has to do with the life or safety of an individual. So again, uh, it's like, uh, you know, with the GDPR, you know, you want uh, certainty in relation um, to, to some of these um, uh, situations. And you were mentioned the repeat offenders as well. Organizations may have something like that already in play, but this, again, is a requirement. If you have people who are, you know, frequently posting manifestly illegal content or abusing your complaint program, and they're constantly making appeals or complaints that are completely unfounded, then you can, with a warning, essentially suspend them from the platform for a period of time. So, uh, you know, the, the principles aren't changing, but there's a process there now that organizations can maybe take a little bit of the pressure off of having to develop these systems themselves. So I think it, w I think it will be welcome, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, Helen mentioned earlier on that yeah. Technology Ireland are coming together, and Neve mentioned as well the need for codes of conduct mm. and so forth. And those conduct, codes of conduct have to be informed by the reality of, yeah. of how uh, all of these platforms are going to address all these new rules. 
but at least there will be one set of rules, I suppose, and it'll apply pan, on a pan-European basis, so that will be helpful. Maybe if we briefly flick it, flip it around uh, for, for you, Rose, I mean, we've looked at it from the context of the platforms, but in terms of the people who are impacted by the allegations that they've posted content in breach of the new regime, it was mentioned earlier on in one of the questions, uh, you know, what are the implications for, for those people? Sure, Rob. So users are now going to have far greater insight into the decision-making process, which has led to their content being removed, and the right to be provided with far more information surrounding the removal of content online. So if I'm a user of a platform, that platform's terms and conditions now have to tell me how decisions are made in the first instance. And if my content's been taken down, I've also got the right to be provided with a statement of reasons. That's, it's gotten quite a lot of airtime today, and for good reason, because it's very prescriptive. So that's going to tell me why my content's been taken down as a consequence of one, another user of the platform, or two, an own volition investigation by the platform itself. Mm-hmm. So the statement of reasons includes a very prescriptive list of information, which includes the territorial scope of the content removal decision, the duration of the content removal, like how long it's going to last, whether AI was used to identify the content and disable it, and when the removal decision has been founded on illegality, the statement of reasons has to reference the law that's been contravened. Mm -hmm. And then for content that's incompatible with terms and conditions, the decision has to reference the contractual ground of those T's and C's that's been relied upon, and an explanation on why that content is incompatible with that provision. You also have to be provided with clear and user-friendly information on the possibilities for redress that are available, the internal complaint handling mechanisms, out-of-court dispute resolution, and judicial redress. So it is important to note as a user, if you engage with the internal process or out-of-court dispute settlement, that doesn't in any way opt you out of your rights to go to court to obtain an order. I think within the recitals of the DSA, it says none of this is without prejudice to uh, a person's right to seek an effective remedy before the national courts. So then looking at the complaints lodging process, a user can lodge a complaint appealing a removal decision for up to six months after the date when they're informed. And then the platform is required to handle the complaint in a timely, non-discriminatory, diligent and non-arbitrary manner, which requires three key things. Reconsidering its decision regarding the information and potentially reversing it, where there's a reasonable and legitimate reason to do so. Inform complainants without undue delay on their decision regarding the complaint. And then around the AI, you've got to ensure that decisions are made under the supervision of appropriately qualified staff and not solely on the basis of automated means. So for organisations mapping this impact, you may or may not currently offer an appeal option, so you'll need to identify resources to respond to those appeals. And then the appeal process, as I said, can't be wholly automated, so you've got to identify you know, a human along that process, along that point, to make sure there's appropriate oversight and quality control. There is an emphasis on costs here, which is meant to remove the cost burden for that user. So if the platform loses, there's a cost penalty, but no such corresponding burden on the user. So users are absolutely going to want to go and exhaust all those possible avenues to the fullest extent before resorting to court proceedings. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So the availability of these avenues will be for all at low cost as opposed to currently I think a lot of these redress mechanisms are only available for those who can put their hands in the pocket and, and effectively recruit lawyers to go off to the court for relief. So, mm-hmm. um, so there's going to be a lot of changes for, for content moderators under their DSA obligations, both to the recipients of the services and then to those who are seeking the removal of, of, of all the legal content. 
Uh, Kira, you mentioned the DSCs will be notified by law enforcement uh, requests yeah. that, um, sorry, that the, under the DSA, mm. the, uh, the platforms will be notified of these law enforcement requests and they'll have ongoing reporting and governance obligations. So maybe like on a business as usual basis when we are live in this new regime, what are these reporting requirements going to look like? Sure, I think um, some of them have been mentioned already, so I won't go back over ground, but the transparency reporting is the biggest one, um, just to, and it's been mentioned before, but, you know, there's a lot of detail, there's a lot of data points, all the things that we've discussed here, um, but things like the timing it takes to respond, the decision, the type of content, uh, how many decisions you overturn then, um, so if a decision comes in, you decide to suspend or remove content, and then on the complaint handling process, you decide to reinstate, that needs to be reported, because I think they're going to look at, um, you know, if basically a lot of decisions are being reversed, um, you have to also report on your uh, repeat offenders and all this. So there's a lot of data points that are going to be collected, and that's all publicly reported. Um, there was another piece that I don't think has been mentioned, and I actually don't know if it's gotten a lot of airtime, is... Uh, um, there is a real-time reporting obligation in relation to decisions and statement of reasons, so that needs to go up to the uh, commission, and there's going to be a publicly available database um, of that information that was scrubbed of personal data. Uh, but that'll be a huge, um, uh, vast amount of information in relation to how these decisions are being made, um, and that will, again, there'll be a, some kind of engineering lift in order to... to, to to collate that information and, and to send it to the commission. So those are the two main, I suppose, reporting obligations, the, the real-time one, essentially, and then the transparency report was obviously going to be a major operation. Uh, I won't go into detail on the risk assessment because it's already been mentioned. That isn't a reporting obligation. Ultimately, you undertake the risk assessment. VLOPs and VLOSs, not everyone um, will have to do it. Uh, but that's not automatically reported. But the commission, the DSC, and the, the Digital Services Board can request information. And I'm sure they most definitely will, particularly because the Digital Services Board also has their own report that they need to um, publish on a yearly basis. Um, in relation to what they're identifying as systemic risks and best practices, and that information is going to come from what they're pulling from the risk assessments and also what they're seeing from some of this, um, this database of de decisions as well. So uh, there's going to be a lot of information out there, yeah. which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and look, hopefully there's been a lot of information in this room as well, so I'm conscious that we need to allow time for our final panel. Um, but maybe the key takeaway I'm taking from this one is is that existing content moderation you know, programs are not perfect and are a constant kind of iterative process of uh, using technology to identify harmful and illegal content and taking it down. Get ready for a new regime that's a lot more prescriptive about what you must do and how you must do it. And also get ready for the reporting lift that goes yeah. with that because you will be reporting to the very regulators who can fine you uh, large amounts of money as we'll hear in the last panel. Um, in terms of how you account uh, for your behaviour under the DSA and the OSMRA standards. So I might just draw this panel to a conclusion because there will be time for questions before we break for lunch after the next panel. But for now, I'd just like to thank Olivia, Kira, and Rose for their thoughts on the content moderation. Thank you.